Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne this morning. Our Lord, we come to worship you. We come to honor you and to honor your Son, Jesus Christ, the rock from which the water that springs up to eternal life comes from. Lord, we thank you and we honor you for your faithfulness to come and live this lowly life, this creaturely life, that we may have life in you, that you may identify with our weakness, the weakness of human flesh, and to redeem us from the weakness of human flesh that was dominated by sin and the evil one. And Lord, we thank you that you accomplished our salvation. And the gospel is good news because it's about a salvation that was completed and perfected in Christ. So now, Lord, as you gather your people this morning, may you give them the ears and the eyes to hear what says the Lord, what says the Spirit about the things of Christ. Lord, may you give us understanding this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I indicated earlier in the opening, last Friday in 2008, Sister Ella and I were driving to Smyrna, Tennessee to meet with Pastor Jim for the first time because we had a burden, we had a spiritual burden that we could not help ourselves and nobody could help us with. And we sought to find someone who knew about who actually is in charge of all these spiritual things. And the Lord led us to Pastor Jim. And as we were driving there, as Sister Ella was driving there, I still did not have my mind. My mind had been completely taken. And when I'm talking about a mind being taken, I'm talking about your mind not working as to know your name. And on the way, there were just a lot of things. It's a long story. But somewhere in downtown Nashville, there was a lot of traffic. The Lord delivered me and recovered my mind for me to be what it is today. And by the time that I got to GCA and meeting with Pastor Jim, who didn't even know that we were coming, my mind had been restored, but I was very scared. I've never been so scared. Like I was scared in August and September of 2008. I grew up in the rural areas in Zimbabwe with a lot of animals, snakes, mambas, black mambas, cobras, pythons, you name it, hyenas, everything is there. Never scared. But I come to the States with a lot of lights and I'm scared to death because the Lord had given me a burden that only Christ could lift. And the burden was given me 
that I may run to Christ. And the burden was only lifted when I came to Christ. So my mind was restored as is because of the name of Jesus. So when I talk about Jesus, I'm not talking just about salvation in an eternal life sense. I'm talking about salvation even to be able to function the way that I function. And even for you, God has saved you to allow you to continue to do what you do. You are not doing what you are doing because you ate something last night. You only have your mind and you know your name because God actually grants it to you. Every minute of the day, the Lord has to make sure that your mind is functioning. Otherwise, it's gone. He has to make sure every part of you is working. Otherwise, you are gone. So all to say, I preach Christ by God's grace. But if I stop preaching Christ, I can't benefit you or myself. I have to preach Christ. I have a huge burden. I have a testimony of Christ that even some of the biggest luminaries of the church and saints who have passed through this world have never had that kind of testimony. The Lord gave it to me. And I have to do something with it. Because I know something that a lot of people don't know about. I know that Jesus is real in a way that a lot of people don't. And that is why I have to continuously tell you about him because it's all about him. And so when we go to our teaching today, we are going to be learning about what did Jesus accomplish on the cross. What did Jesus actually perform? What did he do on the cross? And for whom did Jesus die? Did he die for you or did he die for someone else? Did he die for everybody who ever lived in this whole world? Or what happened on the cross? What did Jesus actually do? Because these are things that people don't want to talk about. But the scriptures do tell us what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The scriptures tell us that salvation is actually a completed work. But the teaching that you find in a lot of so-called churches, they make it sound like you are the one who has to come and help God to get you saved. And that cannot be true. That can only be Christ dishonoring. For our teaching, it's going to be from Luke. Luke 1 Verse 67 and 68. Luke 1, 67 to 68. And it reads, And his father, Zacharias, that's the father of John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. The God, the Lord God of Israel has visited his people 
and accomplished redemption for his people. And this was from the words of the Holy Spirit. So we want to work with that understanding to find out where you are and what did Jesus actually do on the cross. Because if we know what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross, then we can know whether we are 100% saved or we are 90% saved. Did Jesus on the cross just do 99% of your salvation or he did 90% of your salvation or maybe 60% of your salvation and you have the responsibility to do the remainder of what Christ did not accomplish. So, the title of our teaching is What Did Jesus Accomplish on the Cross? And related to that is also a similar title which says, For Whom Did Jesus Die For? And if you want, another question would be, if Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, why then are some people not saved? The church cannot be the true church of Jesus Christ if it hates and despises the very doctrines that established it. We are not Christians because we come to church or that we were baptized. But we are Christians because God chose us in Christ and Christ redeemed us and the Holy Spirit sanctified us. And that we, because of the gift of faith, believe what God says about himself and what he says about Christ and what he says about you and I. The church is only so not because men and women are choosing Christ. That's a lie. The church is not formed because men came to choose Christ and to make him Lord and Savior. When you came to Christ, he was already Lord and Savior. You are the one who is now coming and realizing that Jesus has been appointed by God to be the Lord and your Savior. The church is not an institution or a body by human ideas or human making. The church is a body only exists because of Jesus Christ. And there is no gospel without Jesus Christ. There's no gospel without Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Jesus Christ is the gospel. The church exists for Christ. Because from before the foundation of the world, before everything was created, God the Father gave a people to Christ. And that's the only reason why you were born. You were not born because your parents wanted to have three more kids. 
You were not born because your parents wanted to have four more boys and three girls. Some of you come from big families. You were born because God determined that you would exist for Christ. And that in time, the Holy Spirit would come to you and let you know who you actually are. Your name is new because that's the name that God gave to you before the foundation of the world. Because if you believe in Christ, the Bible says your name was written in the book of life before the world was created. So then if you show up and your name is the cell, that is saying that's the name that God gave you. He is a micromanager. He manages even the name that we receive. So those who profess Christ need to check themselves and, and what they believe to see if they believe in the true God of the Bible or the God of their own creation. The Bible is very clear to declare to us that when Jesus went on the cross, he accomplished something. It is clear that when Christ was raised up, he not only completed, but he perfected a work of salvation and that it need not be repeated ever again. Let's go to the scriptures and hear what the Holy Spirit has recorded for us about what Christ did. John 17 verse 4. John 17 verse 4, this is what he says. This is the priestly prayer. It's one of those places that if you want to hear what Jesus thinks about you, you go to John 17. Some brilliant prayer from the Son of God praying for you. This is what he says. I glorified you. He's praying to the Father. He says, I glorified you on the earth. How? How did Jesus glorify the Father on the earth? He says, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus, in his thinking, he glorified the Father by accomplishing the work that he was given to do. And now that he accomplished the work that he was given to do, this is what he says in John 19.30. John 19, Jesus is on the cross. Jesus is on the cross. And he has been given the sour wine. And he says, it is finished. And he says, it is finished. That which the Father gave him had been finished when Christ bowed his head and gave up the Spirit. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. God 
after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he met the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Listen to this. When he, Christ, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And the same writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 14, get this, in Hebrews 10, 14 would say, For by one offering, by one offering on the cross, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. It may not be in the minds of sinners that salvation is completed. It may not be in your mind that salvation is a completed work. It may not be in your understanding that the work of salvation is the work of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in Jesus' mind, his understanding is salvation is the work of God alone. And not only that, that he actually accomplished something when he was walking in shoe leather. And when he got on the cross and when he resurrected, he had finished the work that God had given him to do. And it is therefore safe for us to follow not man's opinion, but Jesus' opinion about what he did. We have to hear what Jesus says he did. In John 17, as we read, Jesus told the Father that he had glorified the Father by completing. And the word that's used there, the Greek word, is used to mean fulfilling or carrying out the contents of a command right to its end. Finished, the Greek word means carrying out the contents of the command that had been given right to its end, right to its fulfillment, right to its completion. And so, based on that, he asked the Father to glorify him because he had finished the work that he had been given to do. And to that, the writer of Hebrews also tells us that after accomplishing salvation, after accomplishing salvation, after making a purification of sin, Jesus actually sat down. He sat down as one who had completed his work. You do not sit down if you have not completed your work. And of course, the language in the book of Hebrews is talking about the priests. When the priests went into the tabernacle, there was no chair in the tabernacle. The priests, as they went into the tabernacle 
to offer their sacrifices of all the animals that they'd killed. There was no chair. They did not sit down. But this priest, this Jesus, when he went into the tabernacle and made an offering of himself, when he went on the cross and made an offering of himself, he sat down. Why did he sit down? Because his work was done. The priests of the Old Testament had to come week after week, year after year, month after month, and be offering sacrifices. But this one, when he offered himself once, he was done, and he sat down. So the writer of Hebrews also tells us that by one-time offering, a one-time offering, he perfected not for one week, not for one month, not for one year, but Christ perfected forever. He perfected for all of eternity so much that there's nothing that you can ever do to get yourself out of it. It's such a completed work that in all of eternity, God is satisfied with you because of what Christ did on the cross. But we are told also that this offering was for the purpose of perfecting, of perfecting forever a particular group of people. That is, those who are sanctified. Hebrews 10.34 He perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified. Who are these who are being sanctified? The word sanctify is the same word as saint. Saint. The word sanctify is the same word as saint. And what does that mean? It means to be set apart. Saint means one who has been set apart by God. It means one who has been elected by God in Christ. It means one who has been chosen by God in Christ. That's what makes you a saint. You can't be a saint by yourself. You can't make yourself a saint. God has to make you a saint. And he makes you a saint by his decree. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that's where you got your saintship from. So when were the saints chosen in Christ? When, when, when were the saints chosen in Christ? Is it when they made a profession of faith or before the world was formed? What do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures actually say about when you became a saint? Ephesians 1, verse 4. Ephesians 1, verse 4. This is what it says. He, that is God the Father, chose us in him that is Christ. God the Father chose us in him 
that is in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. For what reason? That we would be holy and blameless before him. That's the only reason why you believe in Christ. God chose you before the world was formed. That you should be holy and blameless before him. Because if you are not in Christ, you cannot be holy and blameless. It doesn't matter how good you are, you have to be in Christ for you to be holy and blameless. And praise God, you are in Christ and when God sees you, he sees Christ. That's the only way you can make it to heaven. That's the only way. So what is the good news of the gospel? What is the good news of the gospel? Everybody says the gospel is good news. There's a lot of good news in the gospel. But at the heart of the good news of the gospel is the completion of the work of salvation in Christ. Such that no work that pertains, no work that pertains to your acceptance by God has been left to you or for you or anyone to finish. The gospel is good news because God has not left any work that pertains to your being accepted to you to accomplish. Because if God leaves you something to do, what happens if you get run over by a car? Who is going to finish the work for you? You are going to hell. But the gospel is good news because it is saying right now, even if you have a heart attack, you are waking up in glory. The good news of the gospel is only so because Christ actually did everything that God required of you to be accepted by him. So what about what do you do? What about what do you do? What you do is not to complete the gospel. You are not coming to church to complete the gospel. You are not believing to complete the gospel. You come to church and you believe because the gospel is completed. And a lot of people have this upside down. You do not repent and believe in Jesus to complete salvation, but because you possess salvation. He who believes has eternal life. You believe because you have eternal life. That's the teaching of John. So the work of salvation is beyond the power of your faith and repentance. The work of salvation is beyond your power. You can't repent enough to be saved. You can't believe enough to be saved. It is beyond your power and ability of reason and will. What if you have Alzheimer's, like we always see at the nursing home? What's going to happen to your reason? Can you reason your way to heaven? 
You can't. You can't reason your way to heaven. You can't will your way to heaven. You do not have enough power and reason to make it into heaven. Salvation is a work that can only be performed by one who is God and a perfect man, a God-man, Jesus Christ. If you are not a God-man, if you are not a God-man, forget about helping yourself to go to heaven. You can be put on the cross, but you just be getting nails into your hands for nothing. It's the God-man who has to be raised up. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, it is He who can bring you to heaven. So then, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Did He actually save someone? Or did He save some people? Or did He save everybody? Or did He even save anyone for that matter? We have here two questions that we have to answer with respect to Jesus and what he did and with respect to man. Firstly, was the work that Christ performed on the cross sufficient to save anyone? When Christ was on the cross, whatever he did, whatever he said he completed, was that enough? And how do we know that what he did was enough? Because one of these days, you and I have to die. And we have to die with the confidence that whatever God requires of us has been satisfied in Christ. The same question can be asked differently as I said at the beginning. Did Christ pay 99% or 100% of the price of redemption or not? Did he pay 99% or did he pay 100%? Because if he paid 99% of the price of redemption, then no one was saved. If you go to a store, if you go to a store and you pay 99% of the price, and it's too all them. And if you don't pay the 1%, they're coming for you. They are coming for you. Someone has to pay the 1%. But if Christ paid 100%, then he got what he paid for. If I go and buy some couches and I pay 100%, they are getting delivered to my house. And if they don't deliver my couches, there's going to be trouble. And if Christ paid for some people, he has to get his people. Otherwise, there's going to be trouble. Christ has to have the people that he paid for. And he paid for his people by his own blood. But let's look at the situation that is presented in a lot of churches. That your salvation rests on you. That is saying, you have your 1%, you have your 2%, you have your 10%. If you have your 1%, whether you get saved or not, now depends on you. It now depends 
on your will, on your diligence, on your power of choice, on your giving, on your church attendance, on your being nice to other people. And the list never ends. How do you know that you have given enough? How do you know that you have loved enough? How? There's no way to tell. There's no way to tell. But the scriptures tell us that it's done and there's a way to tell. The way that we know that your payment was made and God accepted it and God is satisfied with the payment is that he rose Jesus from the dead. He raised Jesus from the dead. That's the only sign. That's the only sign. No other sign shall be given to this adulterous generation but the sign of Jonah who was in the belly of the world three days and three nights. Right? The resurrection of Christ already in Jonah. And that's the sign that Jesus has given us. The scriptures are very clear that Jesus accomplished something on the cross. The scriptures are very clear that Jesus actually finished payment for our sins. 1 John 3, 5. 1 John 3, 5. This is what it says. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him, there's no sin. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of gods and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You see, the redemption that Christ accomplished is an eternal redemption. He actually obtained eternal redemption, not for himself, but for his people. That is, you who believe. And Acts 20, verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. He purchased a church with his own blood. So the church does not belong to anybody. I did not pay anything for you. You belong to Christ. Christ is your, you don't belong to your husband. You don't belong to your wife. You belong to Christ. Christ is the one who has the title deeds to Nilia. And no one can come and change that. It cannot be changed. And he has written the title deeds in his own blood. And it cannot be removed. So, if Christ paid 100% of the redemption price on the cross and purchased some people, 
Why then do some men get saved and others are not? Is it still possible that Jesus paid for the sins of people who end up going to hell? If Christ claims that he paid everything, and yet we have people who go to hell, what's going on? Do the scriptures even teach us to understand what really is going on? Because if Christ paid for the sins of all the people on the cross, then no one should be in hell. And if Christ did not pay for anybody's sins, if Christ only paid some of your sins, then no one was saved. And there's no gospel. There's no gospel. If Christ only paid some of your sins, we are still in our other sins that Christ did not pay for. And we still need another sacrifice. We still need another Jesus to come. But God only has one son. If Christ is not able to remove your sin, if Christ was not able to completely pay for your sins, then we are hopeless. Because God has no other son to give to come and do the remainder of what Christ did not do. But if Jesus paid for all our sins, then there's nothing that is standing between you and God right now. There is nothing that is standing between you and God right now so as to condemn you. You cannot be condemned. There's nothing that you owe God. You do not owe God anything. Because what Jesus did, he did it all for you and on your behalf. And this is why the gospel that we preach is the good news because it says if you are in Christ, it is well with your soul. If you are in Christ, no matter how bad things get this side, your life is hidden in Christ. You are a child of glory. You are going to find yourself in the face of Jesus, beholding the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. But we have to keep working this. So if Jesus paid for all the sins, whose sins did he pay for? Because we know Jesus is God. And Jesus is sinless. And if he paid completely for sins, whose sins did he pay for? Did he pay for the sins of the whole world? That is the sins of every man, woman, and child who ever lived. Or did he not? If he did pay for the sins of all men who ever lived and who ever live, then all will be saved. If Jesus paid for the sins for everyone who ever lived, right from Adam to the very last person who shall be here, who shall be born, 
when Christ returns, then all will be saved. And none would be in hell. Hell will only be for the devil and the fallen angels. But we know from the scriptures that Judas was condemned. Judas, the one who betrayed the Lord, was condemned because Jesus said of Judas that he is the son of perdition. He is the son of hell who was destined to go to hell. But not only that, we have Pharaoh of Egypt. He was condemned. Romans 9, right? We know who else? Herod, right? He tried to make himself a god. And the Lord struck him, right? So then, if the payment that Jesus made is enough for everyone, then all these people would have been saved. Because we know for sure that the payment that Jesus made for sins is sufficient to cover the sins of all. Because Jesus is God, what he did on the cross is enough to save everyone who ever lived. It's enough to save if there were 500 trillion planets like Earth with 20 billion people each, Christ would still be able to save them. And yet, there are some people who still go to hell. So we have to work the understanding. What is happening is that the issue of what Christ did on the cross is not whether the payment was insufficient. The payment was sufficient. The issue is the application. To whom is the payment applied? The issue is if you have a Bill Gates, or a Warren Buffett. They are multi-billionaires. If you were to come here, he can come and give Brother Guido a billion dollars and then go home. Does that mean that Bill Gates or Warren Buffett has run out of money? No. If he wanted, he could go ahead and give Brother Robert another billion dollars. And you still have enough money. And you can give Sister Nelia another billion dollars. And you still have money. He's not running out of money. But if he decides to just give two or three of us in here and go home, it is still within his rights. It doesn't mean that he didn't have enough money. So that's the same thing with Christ. Christ's payment on the cross is sufficient to cover everybody if he wants. The issue is he has determined who benefits from it and who doesn't. So the power is in Christ. The power is in God. Whether you receive Christ or not, it's not in your power. It's in the power of God. And this is important for the church to know because the church is not worshipping Jesus the way that the church needs to worship Jesus. Because they think they are the ones who are doing something for Christ. They don't know that it's 
only by the grace of God that they are in Christ. It's only by the grace of God that they are in Christ. And this grace is not given to all. It's not because the grace is insufficient. No, the grace is sufficient for all. But God has some other purpose. He doesn't give it to all. Praise God for his grace. So when it comes to salvation, we have two beings that are involved. We have God and we have men. Who is limiting salvation? I'm going back and building this and beating this horse until it stops kicking. <laughs> is it God who is preventing others from partaking in the blessing of Christ? Or is it preachers who are not bringing the message with enough emotions? Preachers who are not presenting the message and giving people what they want to hear so that they can love Christ. Who is getting in the way of other people getting saved if Christ actually made a full payment for our sins? Sinful men would argue that God cannot be the one. God cannot be the one who is limiting the extent that is the coverage of the atonement. Or the work of Christ, we call that the atonement. The atonement, the at one meant. At one meant. Christ is making us at one with God. So, sinful men, because they want to exalt themselves in their own decisions for Christ, they say it is us sinners who limit the atonement by failing to exercise our will, our free will. And so we find ourselves in hell because we were not reasonable and diligent enough to exercise our good sense. That's the argument. So when the gospel is presented, the gospel is presented as something that appeals to your will, that appeals to your good sense. It's not being presented as something that Christ accomplished. It's not being presented as something that Christ accomplished. But we have to know that you have no will or sense so as to see the usefulness of Christ because you are born dead in trespasses and sins. None, none has any sense. None has any sense or will to see the usefulness of Christ. This is how we have to reason. We have to reason as the scriptures teach. The scriptures say we are saved by grace alone. Salvation is all of grace. All the elements of salvation are found in grace. So Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. These are very important verses to know. You have to know this. 
Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9, this is what he says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, so you say, okay, I was saved by grace through faith. So the faith is mine. Oh, is that right? No. Listen. And that not of yourself. So the faith is not of yourself, but whose is it? It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. And by grace, God means that there's nothing about salvation that he requires of a sinner that is not provided and supplied in Christ. That is what grace means. And if Christ is the one who supplied and fulfilled everything in our place, then we are 100% saved. We were saved in Christ and by Christ. Chosen in Christ. Saved in Christ. Whether we got saved or not, depended not on us. Whether we get saved or not, depends not on us, but on Christ. Because Christ took the legal responsibility as your surety. He took the responsibility as your representative. He took your place to perform that which you could not do for yourself. And if God the Father said Jesus accomplished that work, then we are truly saved. And we actually have a good gospel. We have some good news. <laughs> if Christ actually accomplished the work, then we have some good news. And if we are looking for some good news, this is the best news. We are so saved. And if we are so saved, then Christ did not make us savable. Christ did not create the possibility for us to be saved. Jesus did not make salvation possible. Rather, he made salvation a sure and complete hope. A sure and complete hope. Because you are retiring, your money is going to run out. If your money doesn't run out, your health is going to run out. Something is going to run out. But we have something in Christ that doesn't run out. We have an everlasting righteousness. We have everlasting life. For us to understand what God is teaching about the work of Christ, we have to understand the definitions of words like grace. What does grace mean? What does grace? Because everybody says, I'm saved by grace, but it's all about me. <laughs> no. If it's about you, then it's not about grace. It's about works. Grace is unmerited favor to the ill-deserving, to the very bad ones. It's not just that it's unmerited favor. You have to be really, really bad. And then God grants you his favor in Christ. And if you think you add 
faith to your salvation, then you are part of the deserving. And God does not serve the deserving. God only serves the ill-deserving. The deserving cannot be saved. God does not serve anyone who is able to serve themselves because they have room for boasting. If they have to show up in heaven, they will say, of course. What were you thinking? I figured this out by myself. I came to Christ. I chose Christ. I made him Lord and Savior. I invited him to my heart. I actually had some preacher this morning. He was saying, you have to change your heart. You have to change your heart to receive God's blessing. I'm like, what Bible are you reading? Are you reading the Quran or are you reading the Bible that we have? You can't change your heart. That is why you need Christ. You need someone who is God to reach for your heart and give you a new heart. But that is the nonsense that is being preached out there and that's what people are believing as the gospel. And amazingly, they'll be like, in this church, they're like, I'm thinking maybe at least 15,000 people. And they had their hands raised and just amening to that nonsense. You can't change your heart. God has to do it. So, if you have something to give to God, if you have something that you kicked in towards your own redemption, you have reason to boast. And that is not agreeable with God. God is very self-centered. There's no being in this universe who is so self-centered as God is. Because he alone is worthy of glory. And salvation is a work of demonstrating the glory of God in Christ. So you don't show up on your hind legs and talk about you made Jesus into something. You didn't make Jesus anything. It's Jesus who made you something. Faith and repentance are required by God of all sinners. But faith and repentance are gifts from God. They are gifts of God's grace in Christ Jesus because sinners have no faith. And that is why we are sinners. We are sinners because we are faithless. Faith has to be given. Repentance has to be given. So, if you believe in Christ, if you believe in Christ, that's repentance. That's faith. Because you can't believe in Christ. You can't turn from who you used to be to come and say, Jesus is Lord, unless God gives it to you. God has to grant it. He has to grant it by grace. Why? Because you belong to him. And if all this is true, then there's something that is missing in our understanding 
of grace. If this is true, if grace gives us the faith and the repentance, and yet men think that faith is their own work that they exercise so as to choose Christ, there is something that we are not understanding. There is more to grace than just being grace. Grace is a sovereign grace. That's what is missing. Grace is a sovereign grace. And a sovereign grace comes from a sovereign God. Which means the one who gives it as a sovereign, he is not compelled. He is not compelled by anyone outside of himself to give it. He has the power and the right to give it to others, but not to all. That's grace. That's sovereign grace. And so God determined that when Jesus went on the cross, he paid for the sins of only those he had chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And these are the ones that he calls his ship. And the Lord Jesus Christ would say in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So when Christ was going on the cross, he saw himself as laying down his life not for the gods, but for the sheep. He saw himself as dying on the cross as a substitute for his sheep. And these are the ones that he says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The ones who are Jesus' sheep, are able to identify the voice of their shepherd when he calls them and they follow him. That is, they come to faith and repentance. Faith and repentance do not make you a sheep. Rather, they confirm that you are sheep. Faith and repentance confirm that you are sheep. And these, the ones that are called sheep, are the ones who were granted power by God to come to Christ. And to this Jesus says in John 6.65, Therefore I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. No one, no one can come to Christ unless it has been granted from heaven. So it is not enough to say Jesus paid for the sins of the world. There are other limiting factors that narrow the application of the work. The Father has to be the one to grant you or anyone the ability to come to Christ. Otherwise, you are not coming. If God does not grant it to you, you are not coming to Christ. And Jesus says, no one. He didn't say some people. He says, no one. That's a universal negative. Nobody. No one. Doesn't matter how educated, doesn't matter how powerful. He says, no one can come to him 
unless it's been granted. And Jesus would also say in John 10, we are going to be working and reworking this teaching when we get to these chapters again to develop more understanding of what Jesus was teaching. This is what he says, John 10, 14 to 15. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the world. No, doesn't say that. I lay down my life for my sheep. For my sheep. The sheep, not the gods. The sheep do not become sheep because they believed in Jesus. Right? That's a misconception of election by many professing Christians because it exalts them. It exalts their own will. It makes them into something. It makes them like people who can really think, who can value things. No. You're not, you're not able to do that. So you are not, you do not become a ship by the exercise of your will. Your will is bound. It cannot come to Christ. And because you can't come to Christ, the only reason you come to Christ is because God chose you in Christ. And he told the Jews in John 10, 26, the, the Lord was talking to the Jews. And the Jews were not believing in him. The Jews were causing a lot of strife to the Lord. And this is what the Lord said to them. But you do not believe. Because, listen, listen, because you are not of my ship, as I said to you. So the reason you believe is because you are ship. You do not believe in Christ to be a ship. Very important distinction. So according to Jesus, one believes in him because they are already ship. You are already ship. In Christ by God's election. See, election is a doctrine that the church doesn't like to hear anymore. But that's the only doctrine that establishes the church. <laughs> so coming to faith in Christ is coming to the knowledge that God already saved you in Christ. And the sheep are the ones that the Father gave to Christ before the foundation of the world. So then, salvation is not limited by you. Salvation is not limited by the power or will of a sinner. Salvation is limited by the sovereign will of God. And of course, this makes sinners crazy. They don't want to hear a God like that who takes away control from them. And they'll say, I'll never believe in a God like that. I don't believe in your God. Unfortunately, that's the only God there is. Fairness is not a category of God. That is a human category. If God has to be fair, then no one should be saved. If God has to be fair, no one gets saved. Or should go to hell. 
But God has much more interest in salvation than just being merciful and being fair. God has his glory in mind. <laughs> it's the glory of God that is moving everything. So salvation is about the glory of God in Christ. Listen to Romans 9, 21 to 24. We have to talk about these things because you may never hear them. And the Lord has given us this time so that we may hear them. Because these are the only important things that you ever get to hear anyway. Listen to Romans 9, 21, 24. Is what he say. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay? The potter is God. To make from the same lamp of clay one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. Verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. This is what Apostle Paul is arguing. He's saying, the, the whole chapter is talking about election. He's saying this is the reason why some people get saved and others are not. It's in the power of God who is the porter, who is clay, and he makes from the same lamp of clay. There's no difference in the, in the clay. The difference only comes from God. So he makes from the same lamp of clay, from the same lamp of fallen humanity, he makes some people for salvation, that he may display his grace and glory in them, and he has another lamb that he does not save, to demonstrate his power again. This explains why some people don't get saved. And the ones who are the dishonorable vessels are the ones who, when they hear the gospel, still think that the gospel is foolishness. You come to them and you tell them about Christ. They don't want to hear about Christ. They'll go crazy if you tell them about Jesus. But when you hear about Jesus, your heart starts pumping. You're like, tell me more about Jesus. Why? Because you are a vessel of mercy. You are a vessel of grace. So God works in the category of holiness, of righteousness, and his glory. And all this is done righteously. Right? All this is done righteously. Okay. So now so, someone will come then. And then they'll start to argue with you and say, well, they'll go to John 3, 16 and say, well, Christ here is said to have died. God gave his son, his only begotten son. Right? God so loved the world. What about the wor word world and all? Because there are scripture verses that will say Christ died not just for our own sins, but 
for the sins of the whole world. What do we do with those things? What are you going to say to someone who comes and says that to you? That Christ actually here, the Bible is saying, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. How are we to understand what the Holy Spirit was teaching by that? If we have to understand what was being taught, we have to understand the usage of the word all and world. What was the context? In what way was it being used by the writer? Okay, listen to this. I was reading a, a book by a guy called Joan Edward Spencer. Uh, he has a book titled The Five Points of Calvinism in the Light of Scripture. This is what he says. He says, in the Gospel of John, the word world has various meanings whose particular meaning has to be driven by its usage. That is, by its context. He says, the word world has seven different meanings. It has seven different meanings. It has, number one, the classical sense of just this orderly universe that we call the world. The earth itself. Number three, the human inhabitants of the world. Number four, mankind under the creator's judgment alienated from his life in the ethical sense. So there's an ethical sense of the word world. Number five, the general public who were about Christ, Jews in particular, yet people who were flocking to Christ and John would use the language of and the whole world was rushing to him. Number six, the kingdom of evil forces angelic as well as human as related to earth. And number seven, men out of every tribe and nation, but not all tribes and nations as a whole. Men out of every tribe and nation, but not all the nations and all the tribes. So, he says, wherever the word appears, it must be dealt with in the context in much the same way that the word all must be examined. So all and world have to be understood in the context in which the writer used them. For instance, in John 12, 19, John says, And behold, the, whole, the world is gone after him. That cannot mean that all people in the world at this time were going to Christ. There were a lot of people in Palestine who didn't even know that Christ was there. Rather, it was saying there was a multitude. Many people were flocking to him. Not everybody, but many people. So the proper sense of understanding world with respect to the extent or coverage of the atonement is in the sense of point number seven. And point number seven, again, is that Christ redeemed man out of every tribe and nation. Men, individual men, particular people from every tribe and nation, but not everyone in every tribe and every nation. 
So Jesus then did not die to save everyone. Now that does not make people happy. And he surely did not die to save no one. Jesus did not go on the cross to save everybody. And Jesus did not go on the cross to save no one. Jesus did not just make salvation possible. He actually purchased a people. He purchased a particular people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Okay? He purchased a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I'll give you an example. I'm getting to the end of the illustration again of what Jesus did. I have insurance coverage on my cars, but only Ella and I are legally covered by the insurance. But at my discretion, at my discretion, I can add you to my insurance and give you the legal rights to not only drive my car, but to have your liability covered as you drive it. So the issue is not that the coverage is insufficient, but the issue is I am the one who is limiting you the access to driving my car. I stand here as a sovereign who determines who can drive my car and who cannot drive it. And when we talk about these examples, we have no problems with that. Sinners have no trouble understanding that. And yet, they do not give God the same rights. They don't want God to have the same rights to determine who is covered in the insurance that is Christ Jesus. So the implication here, all these things, and we take time to teach them, just for you, to know that if you believe in Christ, that you are actually very saved. That there's nothing that you can do th or that anybody can do to take you away from the salvation that is in Christ. It's not about your faithfulness. It's not about your doing. Because if you have to rely on your faithfulness, if you stumble one time, you've lost it. And you don't know when you're going to stumble. You may be good 99% of the time. But when you stumble, that very last minute before you die, it's gone. Okay? It's gone. So Christ chose you. God chose you in Christ. And for that reason, when you get down on your knees before you ask God for money to pay your bills, thank God that he chose you. One, thank God that he chose you because this teaching is for you to adore Christ more. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for choosing me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making a payment for me that I could not pay for myself. Do you think Jesus is going to be happy? If you want a prayer that makes God happy, is to thank Jesus. If you want a prayer that God hears all the time, exalt his son. You exalt Christ and everything else will be okay.
exalt Jesus because he has everything in his hands. You exalt him because according to Christ, that is the most important thing for him. Christ's concern for you is not that you have enough money to pay for your bills for today. That is secondary. He does that. Even for all these people who hate him, he gives them the ability to pay their bills. But he has given you the ability to pay for something that you would not be able to pay for in eternity. He has given himself for your sake. And he has given you his insurance coverage that you do not pay a dime towards. And yet he bypassed a lot of people when he did that. And he bypassed a lot of people when he did that. So I'll tell you this morning or this afternoon, whatever time it is, there's nothing better or worse in you that caused Christ, that caused God to come and save you. And because there's nothing good in you, all your goodness is found in Christ. All your acceptance is found in Christ. And we may feel that that's not good, but that's good. That's so good. Because when you show up in glory, God is going to have you experience what it means to be a righteous being. For the first time, you are righteous in everything that you think, in everything that you say, and everything that you do. So this is what Christ prayed, and that will be our last teaching on this. In John 17, this is what Jesus prayed. And when Jesus was praying, he prayed for his disciples, he prayed for his people, and not for the world. The Apostle John is very clear to make a distinction always between those who belong to Christ and the world. So Christ did not die for the world. He died for his people. Those that the Father gave to him. Listen to what he says. John 17, verses 13 to, I think, to 21. John 17, 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you, have, which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be, just, be one just as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So Jesus Christ is praying for his people. And he makes a distinction between his people and the world. His people are not those who chose him. His people are not those who chose him, but those whom the Father gave to Christ before the foundation of the world. That is always lost in the teaching. People hate that. That is always lost in the teaching. But this is what Jesus understood. So these are the ones that Christ came on their behalf and completed the work that the Father sent him to do. And if Jesus accomplished salvation, then those that he died for were actually saved. And if you believe in Christ, you are one of those. If you believe in Christ, you are one of those. And so as we partake of communion, may we be reminded of God's grace in choosing us in Christ because he didn't have to. The Lord Jesus on the cross accomplished a full salvation for his elect people, the saints of God, the chosen of God. He actually saved a people to himself and these are the ones who have been given faith and dependence by God as a gift in Christ. And may we be reminded, may we be reminded of the hopelessness of our situation outside God. Outside God imposing Christ on us by his gracious election. May we be reminded of the virtue and the value of the suffering of our Lord as he shed his blood, the blood of the new covenant that was shed for you and I for the remission of sins. For his name is Jesus and he shall save his people from their sins. That's the word of the Lord. Amen.